Let us start with the fact that there has been great changes in the church and in religion in the last few years. Vast amounts of money of money are spent making sociological investigations. What is happening to youth, what is happening to ministers, to priests, to religious, to the laity and the like. Most of these investigations are not to the point because they are in best studies of our culture. Now, it is not our American culture alone that has changed. As a matter of fact, there's been a great spiritual and moral decline throughout the entire world. Therefore, any investigation about one particular country does not really touch the point. For example, those who would say it's because we're more affluent or more learned. Since the changes are supracultural, supranational, it follows that we have to find some cause outside of cultures and outside of nations. There is almost something cosmic involved today in the changes not only in religion but among peoples themselves. But as regards religion, as regards the church, the changes have been so rapid that in ten years that you just cannot account for them alone by investigating this order, that, or the particular attitudes of religious peoples. Who, for example, would have thought that, that some communities of men and some communities of religion would have practically totally disintegrated? And that so many priests and so many religious would fall away? In order to account for these changes, you have to go to something outside of the people themselves, outside of the nation, outside of the communities. You have to go, really, to some alien power which has helped this disintegration. Now, what is this alien power? We do not speak about it in the church. In fact, it's very difficult today to find anything about the satanic in our Catholic writing. The Protestants are writing much more than we are about it. Where do you have to go to find out what is really happening in the world? You have to go to great literature and to psychiatrists. Our theologians are not talking about the demonic. The literateurs who are always in advance, in advance of the times are talking about it. Poets, dramatists. Uh, take, for example, uh, the Irish poet Yeats who said that there is some beast crouching near Bethlehem to be born. It will overturn the world. And I've forgotten who the poet was. I think it perhaps it was Yeats again, yes, who said, The center cannot hold. The good lack all conviction, while the worst are filled with passionate intensity. That is true. The zeal is outside of us, not inside. 
See, fire has two qualities, light and heat. Light is truth, heat is love. We have the truth, but we do not have the fire and the zeal. They have the zeal, but they do not have the truth. Now let us go through, first of all, some of the great literature that is futuristic, prophetic. Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist of the 19th century, uh, spent a number of years in, the, in Siberia under the Tsar, where he saw evil. He pictured evil and evil characters as few have ever done it in all of literature. Not even Dante in his inferno ever captured evil as well as Dostoevsky. Spengler, the great German historian of cultures, said that the next thousand years will belong to the characters of Dostoevsky. Men like Shigalov, Raskolnikov, Shigalov, for example, who says, the only way that I can be free is to take my own life, and in that way I'm greater than God, because I decide when I shall die. Dostoevsky, long before communism came into Russia, saw it coming. He said, men will gather together and, uh, and they will exploit evil. Lawyers who will say there's no such thing as guilt will be on our side. Teachers who deny God will be on our side. They will not know it. But they will help evil conquer the world. And then in that those few great chapters in Brothers Karamazov, he writes of the Grand Inquisitor. He puts the description of the Grand Inquisitor back in the 16th century, when Christ comes again in order to visit the world, and he comes into Seville. And he's met by an old cardinal. In the great prophetic literature, in Robert U. Benson, Lord of the World, Dostoevsky, Soloviev, whom I will mention in a minute. All of them, the great attacks upon the church, will come from inside, not outside. Which is in keeping with scripture. In the prophet Ezekiel, in Chipitea Sanctuario Meo, and Peter repeats it, begin at my sanctuary. Begin the destructiveness. Or the sanctuary will have failed. So in the Grand Inquisitor, Christ comes back and he heals a child. Grand Inquisitor is an old cardinal, 90 years of age. Weasoned, wrinkled face, high-pitched voice. And he begins accusing Christ. I will not go through all of the temptations. Go through the three temptations. Just to give you some idea. Grand Inquisitor is the devil. The first attack that he makes upon Christ was, you refused to turn stones into bread. You said you would give people another bread. Who follows you now? No one. And on and on with the other temptations. And in this long attack upon the person of Christ, our Lord answers not a word. In the whole series of chapters, silence. And when the old inquisitor finishes the attacks upon Christ, 
Our Lord leans over to him and kisses him on the forehead. Blood comes to his face for the first time. And then he recovers his evil ways and said, Go. Never come back. So, the great literature has been prophetic of this age. I will not have time to go into how Dostoevsky develops it. I will not have time to give you the three conversations of Soloviev, who died in the year 1900, in which he describes what would happen in the 21st century when some great dictator would be the master of the world. But coming to another character, Nietzsche. Nietzsche was the son of a Lutheran minister. He was the first one to say, God is dead. It was our American professors who caught up the statement of Nietzsche much later, who told us just a few years ago that God is dead. Of course, light is dead, you know, to a blind man. Harmony is dead to the dead. Certainly God is dead. To those who are not responsive to the Spirit. So Nietzsche, Nietzsche wrote the Antichrist, went crazy writing it. He was a great musician, a friend of Wagner. Pounding the piano, shouting and shrieking against the person of Christ, he went mad. He said, all history begins with the publication of my work, The Antichrist. So he said, what we must do is to go on repeating evil, doing it over and over again, telling people about it, until they begin to think that evil is good. That's what he calls the transvaluation of values. Evil be thou my good. And Isaiah spoke of that, that the time will come when people will say, day is night and night is day. But I must not dwell too long upon the prophetic voices of literature except to say that they do know the world is the way the world is going. We are, we are perhaps not sufficiently keeping up to date. I do not mean with news. I do not mean with the book of the month, anything of that kind. I mean with great currents of thought. And only when we know these great currents of thought will we ever know the direction that we have to take, the battle that we have to fight. We'll be talking about that in the three o'clock conference how we have to meet it. But literature knows about the demonic. And then, psychiatry. Isn't it interesting that the theologians today tell us nothing about the satanic? I'm thinking now of a Catholic book on the last things, in which there is no mention of Satan no mention of hell. We are dropping it. Who picks it up? The psychiatrist. Believe me, unless you know the great thought of the, of the psychiatrist of the day, like Paul Tournier of Switzerland, you cannot know what is going on in our time. Carl Jung, who broke away from Freud, and broke away from him because he said, there are certain subconscious elements in the human mind of the human race. And our dreams often bring these out, the recurrence of fire and water, birth, death, and so forth, and dreams. 
And Carl Jung, long before we had musical comedies which sung about the age of Aquarius, was they would make it to be the age of freedom, which it is not. And those who know mythology, as Carl Jung knows it, thirty years ago he told us about the age of Aquarius and what it would bring to our culture. Well, who is Aquarius anyway? Aquarius is the water carrier. Aquarius, he said, is in the second verse of the book of Genesis. There was a chaos and a void over the waters of the earth. So he said, for 2,000 years we've had this first age of Aquarius, and the symbol of the Aquarius, of the water, was the fish. So our blessed Lord, he said, called men to be fishers, apostles to be fishers of men. The symbol of Christianity and the symbol of the, of the, for the Christian during days of persecution, of the Eucharist, was ichthus, a fish. Ichthus because I-X-T-H, which is one letter in Greek, U-S, meant Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior of the world. So he said the fish was the symbol of Christianity marching forward. But he said in the second age of Aquarius, the fish is in the opposite direction. It is the Antichrist, anti-Christianity. But we have not enough time to give you all of that. Perhaps we can inspire you to do some deep reading about these things. Then the greatest psychiatrist in the United States, Dr. Rollo Mayer Rockefeller Institute. In his second to last book on psychiatry, he has three chapters on the demonic. He said one of the constituent elements of the demonic is to deny the demonic. In other words, he says people are getting close to the demonic when they deny it. And that's biblically sound because God's definition of himself is I am who am. The devil's definition of himself is I am who am not. He is strongest when he's denied. So what is the essence of the demonic to Dr. May? He goes back to the Greek word for devil. He traces it to diabolain. Diabolain in Greek means a tearing apart, a rending. The opposite of symbolain, symbolic, which is putting things together into unity. So from a psychiatric point of view, I'm going to speak of the demonic from two points of view. First from the psychiatric, then from the biblical. First from the psychiatric point of view, the essence of the demonic is the tearing apart. It's the breaking up of unity. It's the smashing of form, of gestalt. It's the rupture of patterns. Anything in the community which would destroy unity, anything in the church which would destroy oneness, this is the essence of the demonic from the psychiatric point of view and how well we know it. Look at it as far as you lay people are concerned in the families. Disintegration of family life, husband and wife, children and parents. Diabolic, the diabolic. Then Dr. May gives three manifestations of the diabolic. First is nudity. He said nudity is one of the ways of destroying real love. The love of that in the culture. 
The second expression of the diabolic, according to this psychiatry, is aggressiveness, violence, hate. And the third manifestation of it is the schizophrenic mind, split personalities. Now, Dr. May does not develop this from a biblical point of view, which indeed is not his purpose as a psychiatrist. But I'm sure that while I am telling you this, you are going back to the gospel and recalling the young man in the land of the Gerardines. Remember this young man that was possessed, whom our Lord meant? First of all, he was naked. Secondly, he was violent. He broke chains, even. And thirdly, he was schizophrenic. Our blessed Lord said to him, what is your name? He said, my name is Legion. That means 12,000 in the Roman army. My name is Legion, for we are many. See the split? I, we, one, Legion, many. These are the characteristics of the demonic. So think about it in religious communities. Think about it in the priesthood. Think about it in your families. And this only from the psychiatric point of view. And the great tragedy, I think, is that in these days we are, we say we're keeping up to date. All we're keeping up to date with is a little novelty here and there. Like after the Vatican Council, we had to have gray hosts, not white hosts. The trivia, the inconsequential things that didn't matter. And we became so excited about things. Just like the nuns become excited when they begin to take off a sign of consecration, how they're going to dress, whether they're, they'll wear pink or any such thing in this particular day. And when everyone dresses alike, there's no, said no great problem. But just as soon as you introduce the mode, then you get this integration. Oh, she's got a beauty, more beautiful costume than I have. And the like. Now let us pass from the from the psychiatric to the biblical. If the essence of the demonic from the psychiatric point of view is the breakup of unity, what is the essence of the demonic from the biblical point of view? It is hatred of the cross. Now let me suggest it to you. I'm, I will be talking in the, la in the last conference, the Holy Hour, about Peter. Remember, our Lord called Peter Satan. Let us not forget that. He called his Pope Satan. And that's what he was in his person, in the eyes of Christ. Satan! You'll hear more about that at five. Now, why did he call him Satan? Well, you go back to the beginning of our Lord's public life. As soon as our Lord began his public life, he was tempted by the devil. Wherever you get a manifestation of the spirit, you also get an increase of the diabolic. For example, after Pentecost, the persecution of Stephen. Moses worked miracles, Pharaoh's magicians imitated. Our Lord was led by the spirit into the desert and he was tempted by the evil spirit. Vatican Council II, an increase of the spirit, then the updating of the ways of the church, and then the demonic as a consequence. 
So go back to the temptations of our blessed Lord. What were they? Three short cuts from the cross. Satan says, practically, you're interested in saving people from sin and guilt, and you're going to redeem them? Listen, I will give you three short cuts. You needn't go to all this trouble. Look at those stones down there. They look like bread, don't they? You're starving. You haven't eaten in 40 days. Man, you're hungry. You've got a food instinct. You've got a sex instinct. You've got a hunting instinct. You've got a power instinct. What are you going to do? Crush these things? Why are you made man anyway? Except to satisfy your instinct? So turn these into bread. Satisfy your emptiness. That was the first shortcut. And the second shortcut. Technology. People today love wonders. Anything that's exceptional, extraordinary. Marvels. Send a man to the moon, everyone listens, send him there two years later, nobody pays any attention. You couldn't name the names of the last three astronauts who went to the moon. Why, we've got to have new marvels. News on the hour, everything new, everything exciting. And so the second temptation from the cross was Satan is saying to our Lord, people love wonders. Something that's exciting. Something that makes them say, oh, fly to the moon, throw yourself down from this people and not be hurt. That will attract them. Give them these technological spectacles and sideshows and they will follow you. And the third temptation of Satan was, and was he lying? When he held, as it were, the whole earth in his hand, a shining globe, and said to our Lord, All these kingdoms are mine. They are mine. And I will give them to you if falling down you will adore. Adore the one who holds the world in his hand. Theology is politics. Forget your God, forget sin, forget guilt, forget holiness. Do the political things. And this will be the temptation to the church in the next 200 years. The third temptation of Christ. These were the three shortcuts from the cross. And on the cross... The satanic again, come down from that cross and we will believe. So today we have a rejection of the cross. We've done away with discipline, self-denial, mortification. All that is necessary is action. You need not have power inside of you in order to act. You just do things, do your own thing. I gotta be me, I gotta be me. Who would want to be me for all eternity anyway? So summarizing the demonic, from the psychological point of view, it is dismemberment. Fission. From the biblical point of view, it is a contempt of mortification, self-denial, the easy cuts and short cuts 
to the conquests of the world. And the demonic is right. I travel this country from one end of, the, of it to the other, and I would not tell you about how I meet the demonic. First of all, we have double agents in the church. Double agents. As governments during war have double agents, those who work for one side but actually are working for another. And so in the church, we have double agents, those that will stay in to destroy. In the New Testament, there are two described who left the church. One was Demas. He went to the world. That was the simple explanation of Demas. Judas stayed in. He stayed in to destroy. And when the demonic seizes anyone, religious or lay, it comes out in anti-heroism. We are true with bigotry. When we had bigots, we always had to combat a doctrine. Today, the demonic is hatred of persons, the anti-hero, and particularly if that person is virtuous. The good today are off the reservation. A chase girl in college has to defend her virginity. She's not worth it unless she's given up her virtue. Why the fondness a few years ago of attacking the Holy Father, the anti-hero? If a boy wants to play ball alone, he's got to have a wall because the wall will throw the ball back to him. He gets a pretty good reaction from a hard wall. And so, those who have the demonic in them like to attack some person who is well-known because in that way they get attention. What's the use, for example, of attacking some inconsequential person? Nobody pays any attention to him. But if you attack the Holy Father, oh, you must be something. You get a good bounce. That's anti-heroism. And when, therefore, you, you hear slurs against those who are, who are trying to serve the Lord, to sanctify their souls and save the world in a redemptive way, in union with the Divine Redeemer, when you hear attacks upon them, remember that this is a tribute, and the one to be judged the one who was making the attacks. Like an American was visiting Paris and he went into the Louvre and saw all the great artistic creations of decades. And he said, I don't see anything in this art. There's nothing beautiful to this. And the guard said to him, listen, these pictures are not on trial. You are. Evil is relational. Relational. Evil is not an absolute. It has to be related to goodness. 
The shadow cannot exist of and by itself. Therefore, only those who are good can understand badness. Only those who are Christ-like can understand the demonic, the Antichrist. If you go into, for example, a Philharmonic concert, and you are an expert in music, sour notes jar you. If you love good literature and speak good English, bad grammar is a bit shocking. It is relational. And so it is with evil. Only those who are Christ can understand it. The others cannot. And the great difference is that we can be possessed without very much knowing it. And certainly we be in the in the service of the demonic without knowing it. Now I I can tell, for example, when I give retreats, when I give retreats to priests, I do not give many to religious, mostly to priests. I can tell those who are going to leave. Do I have any psychic sense? No. This is the gift that God has given me? No. If I talked about liturgy, if I talked about sociology, if I talked about political, social problems, I would not be able to pick them out. But just as soon as you talk about Christ, you can see the non-Christ and the anti-Christ in some souls. Very easy. They do not know they're revealing it, but you can tell by their impatience, their gesture. They are very much embarrassed about Christ if you'd only get off that subject of Christ. And as our blessed Lord said, he was this, the stone of stumbling. And those who would oppose him would be ground to dust. And if we broke against him, we ourselves would be crushed. And he makes the difference. Why am I invited, for example, to so many secular universities? I I have to refuse about ten invitations a day, not just to secular universities, no. But why so many invitations from secular universities? Because the students are looking for something, but there are other types of institutions to which I would never be invited, and the less we say about that, the better. So, this is the difference between Christ and the and Satan. Before we sin, Christ is always the adversary. He stands in the way. He limits us. 
after we sin, he's our friend, our advocate, our defender. Come to me and find rest for your souls. With Satan, it's just the other way around. Before we sin, Satan is the adversary. I mean, is our defender. Satan is our defender because Satan will say, Oh, listen. Haven't you heard about the Vatican Council? We don't believe those things anymore. What are you doing? Going back to Trent? The devil is our defender. Got to be up to date. Then after we sin, see what you've done? Now there's no chance. All right, go down, go down, down. Go to your own place. In sacred scripture, the devil is always described as the adversary. For example, in the book of Zechariah. Now here's a high priest who was not very good, Joshua. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord with the adversary. standing at the right hand to accuse him. Now notice how the Lord comes to our defense. The Lord said to the adversary, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you who are venting your spite on Jerusalem. Is not this man a brand snatched out of the fire? In other words, Joshua, yes, was slipping, but he turned back. And then we read this beautiful passage. Now Joshua was wearing filthy clothes, as he stood before the angel. And the angel turned and said to those in attendance, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he turned on him and said, See how I have taken your guilt from you? I will clothe you in new vestments. New vestments. This is the Lord in relationship to the adversary. And in the book of Revelation, we read about Christ meeting the adversary. In the book of Job, Job says, oh, yes, or rather, Satan says, sure, you treat Job well. Sure, he's good. Touch your skin, see what he does. That was the adversary. And so God said, all right, you may do anything to him except touch his soul. Now, my good people, good fathers and sisters and laity, We are coming into very difficult times, and this is the essence of our struggle today. Believe me. When I go into cathedral churches and see tabernacle veils burned, corpuses thrown off, thrown off crucifixes, blessed sacraments stolen, Nuns throwing away their crucifixes, selling them for the price of silver. Priests keeping up the show of religion without any deep love of Christ. We are in danger. And this is the heart of our struggle today. And when St. Paul was in prison, he wrote some of his beautiful pastoral letters from prison. One of them was the Ephesians. And as he wrote to the people of Ephesus, 
he saw the guard, the Roman soldier, who was always so well attired. And Paul concluded his letter to the Ephesian people with these words. He began talking about the demonic. Put on all the armor which God provides, so that you will be able to stand firm against the devices of the devil. For our fight is not against human foes, but against cosmic powers, against the authorities and potentates of this dark world, against the superhuman forces of evil in the heavens. So fasten on the belt of truth. For coat of mail, put on integrity. Let the shoes on your feet be the gospel of peace to give you firm footing. And with all of these, take up the great shield of faith with which you will be able to quench the flaming arrows of the evil one. For that was the purpose of the Roman shield. Take salvation for a helmet. For sword, take that which the Spirit gives you, the words that come from God. Give yourselves holy to prayer and entreaty, and pray on every occasion for the power of the Spirit.